You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about challenging patient behaviors. Joining me is Dr. Vicki Scheid, who's a regional medical director and a pediatrician at CHOP in the West Grove practice, Melanie Honoyski, a child life specialist, and Julie Ginsberg, an ambulatory nursing practice specialist. Thank you so much for all joining me today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Thanks so much. So we have a new challenging patient behavior pathway at CHOP, which is what we're going to be talking a lot about today. And we know that not all kids with a particular diagnosis have the same behavioral patterns. So I understand why this pathway focuses more on the behaviors than the actual diagnosis that a patient has. But can you give me some examples of the types of behaviors that you're thinking of when using this pathway? Sure. Katie, we've had some significant safety events that have over time, you know, in our network involves patients and families and staff. And generally speaking, this pathway can be used for any child on a spectrum, really from the developmentally appropriate child who is highly anxious to the, on the other end of the spectrum, to the nonverbal autistic child who is aggressively acting out in the office. And I would also mention that any pathway is going to be appropriate for probably about 80% of kids who need it, or really who fit the cohort. It definitely would not be appropriate for everyone. Right. And when you were creating this pathway, what were some of your goals for how or why people would use it? You know, I'd say we wanted to increase the awareness of the behavior safety supports that are available across our care network, and also to support and promote proactive management of the behavior safety needs of patients to ensure adequate and equitable care. I'd also say we wanted to improve the care experiences for patients, families, and staff. The pathway provides a way to standardize documentation, to improve access to available resources, and also to assist with medication considerations really in inappropriate situations. And overall, the idea is that Unsuccessful visits can be time-consuming and can contribute to patient and staff dissatisfaction. And the pathway aims to improve these experiences for everybody. I love that you're thinking about this not only as the challenging behavior from the patient, but the challenges and frustrations and safety concerns, like you mentioned, that are happening really at the patient level, the family level, the staff level. So all angles of it are incorporated into this pathway. Absolutely. So often preparation for a patient with challenging behaviors happens even before the appointment starts. So what are some of the pre-visit considerations and questions that we should use to help identify patients who may benefit from this pathway? 
Yeah, that's such a good question. And one we've actually talked about a lot, actually. The three of us have done some work around screening questions specific to primary care. And and we do know that other hospital-wide initiatives are driving this work as well. However, at this time, this particular pathway does not address the initial screening questions, which would place a patient on the pathway. Sometimes, however, we do know that a parent will call the office to discuss what can be done to mitigate their child's fear for an upcoming visit. At that point, triage nurses are often the ones who take these calls, and and it would be a great time to initiate that pathway and provide some preparation resources as well. Now, let's say we didn't do any pre-visit evaluation, but we end up with a patient in our exam room who has challenging behaviors. What are some of the de-escalation techniques that we can use? Yeah, so as a child life specialist, part of my job is to work with children and their families to provide a less stressful experience for them. So de-escalation is something that oftentimes is involved in my work. Gosh, I could talk about this all day, but for the sake of time, I'll just talk about a few techniques. Most of them actually involve how we communicate with the child. For example, if multiple people are talking simultaneously, consider taking a break and advocating for one voice. Many kids react negatively to a healthcare event because they have a fear of the unknown and simultaneously they feel out of control. So it's equally as important to provide very clear and simple explanations appropriate to their developmental age, offering choices also where choices exist helps the patient feel involved in their care, which can ultimately improve cooperation. Another strategy is to clarify your understanding of what the child is concerned about and then validate those emotions. You know, at this point, we really want to avoid threatening language, which tends to only increase their behavioral response. So instead of saying something like, you know, if you can't hold still, I'm going to need to bring in someone else. Consider saying something like, you know, it it can be really hard to keep our bodies still when we're feeling this way. One of us can help your body stay as still as possible by giving you a big hug. So language that has a sense of empowerment as well and and normalizing the experience for the child. Yep, that's a great way to reframe it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, slowing down our pace is also very helpful. We we work in such a fast-paced environment that sometimes transfers into the child that feeling of that intensity. Modifying the environment is also something that we can do, such as switching up a staff member. Sometimes we just don't have that the same connection with a patient that another staff member might have, you know, and removing or dampening any of sensory input within the space is also something that is extremely helpful. But I will note that we can do all of these things, but if the caregiver is not a part of these conversations, then all of these strategies just might might not work. So although you you won't be able to necessarily do a full assessment with the caregiver in the middle of a visit, there are ways to encourage participation from the parent, you know, asking what has worked in the past and really going off their lead. And if they're unable to participate, they're feeling overwhelmed themselves, then you use your knowledge and expertise to guide them at that point. Right. And partnering with the parents is such a critical part of all of this. So true. I have found that the biopsychosocial pain management can be very effective for patients with challenging behaviors related to immunizations. Can you review some of the most effective strategies here? Yeah, absolutely. So here at CHOP, we do actually have a biopsychosocial pain management job aid, which is an interprofessional resource that lists strategies by age and what type of pain we're hoping to manage. 
So we would address immunizations as procedural pain and would suggest both environmental adaptations and some tangible resources. Some environmental approaches that we would suggest involve decreasing environmental stimulation, something that we just talked about, suggesting fewer people be in the room, you know, dimming the lights, implementing one voice, talking in a soft voice, providing soft music, things of that nature. But we also have more tangible resources that we provide families when discussing pain management. So for example, most of our primary care offices have Buzzy, which is a device used to decrease pain associated with needle sticks, such as immunizations. We often use it for immunizations, finger pricks, and lab work. And for those who don't know what Buzzy is, he's a ice pack that vibrates, correct? Yeah. So Buzzy is a very small device that uses vibration along with ice. And by combining the vibration and the ice, it's a pain blocker. So it blocks the amount of pain experienced by the child. So Buzzy is something that we often would suggest. And and we often give that as a choice for the child as well, which again is twofold. It's helping with pain, but it's also giving the child a sense of control. Another component we use frequently is comfort positioning. And this is when a caregiver is holding the child in a comforting but firm position throughout a medical procedure. We know that from past research that this not only provides a sense of comfort for the child, but it also increases their cooperation since they're sitting upright in the position. Um, And when it's done effectively, it can reduce needle stick injuries as well. So those are are some of the strategies. You know, we also really advocate for procedural distraction. We utilize cold or warmth during procedures and lidocaine cream also is prescribed when it's prescribed ahead of time by the provider and applied at home. It can really be an effective way at reducing needle sticks, um, the pain associated with needle sticks. Great. Well, those are all some very helpful strategies for us. But after having an encounter with challenging behaviors, it's a good idea to make a behavior safety plan for future visits. So do you have a way to guide us through how to make such a plan? I think ideally a behavior safety plan would be put into place before a child comes into the office, but that's not always feasible. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. It should take into consideration a few important factors that are relevant to the child's history, such as any previous negative health care encounters, significant developmental history, communication issues or differences, behaviors that the child may have experienced in the office or at home, and any triggers for those behaviors. Also, the safety plan might include any comfort measures that are known to de-escalate the child or that might provide comfort, such as the ones that Melanie already mentioned. And also, you know, it could be just a favorite toy or breaks in the care that might be needed, scheduled breaks, for example. And, you know, any measures that staff could use to communicate with the child, such as you know, making eye contact or using a quiet voice or environmental changes such as Melanie suggested, which could prepare the child or, for example, going straight into an exam room. But having those in place and communicating those or or knowing where to, to look for those definitely could be helpful. And I think it's all about, you know, preparation, both on the side of the family and on the clinical side. 
this is also a really important way to not only, like you said, be prepared, but for us to learn from what worked in the past to communicate between providers, because even as their primary care pediatrician, I know I don't see them at every visit that they come to the office necessarily. And if they come in for a sick visit and they see one of my partners, it's really great for them to know what's worked in the past so that they don't have to start from scratch every time. Because as you mentioned before, this is a long time commitment sometimes for these encounters. Sure, sure. And having a a place in the chart where, you know, it's a go-to, it's a known go-to where, like you said, multiple staff members, anybody really knows where to go to look for that. And that's a really important part in the communication of all of this information. And rarely do I need to use medications to help with challenging behaviors, but there are some that can help. So Dr. Scheid, can you review which medications you recommend and how you approach this? Sure. We've tried to keep it fairly simple in the pathway, so we've recommended only three medications, Benadryl, hydroxyzine, and lorazepam. We know some providers are really reluctant to use medications, but hopefully with this choice of medications, they'll feel safe about doing that because these are safe medications. The recommended doses, the doses in the pathway, are the anxiolytic doses, not the sedation doses. But to do this successfully and when to use medications, we really want to stress to use all of the techniques that Melanie has talked about prior to any medication use. Then we want providers to look back and review any previous medications and what responses the child had to those medications. Also recommend a test dose at home prior to the appointment. You wouldn't want a paradoxical reaction at the time of the appointment or for the child's anxiety to be worsened at the time. The parent should be instructed to give the child the first dose one hour prior to the visit so that it's effective by the time there for their appointment. Great. I love that you're giving us these guidelines because, as we said, this is not something that we do frequently. So I love that the pathway provides some direction and instruction for us to guide families when this is needed. And that's what we want. We just want providers to feel more comfortable using it. And I think the more that they use the medication, they'll feel comfortable in those situations. As a primary care pediatrician, I know that I sometimes need to enlist the help of others with expertise in managing challenging behaviors. What do you recommend in the pathway for those patients who need additional help beyond what we can offer in primary care? We have several options for them, depending on what available resources in their community. So here at CHOP, we're fortunate to have a great child life department. So for those patients who can't complete care due to fear or anxiety related to the healthcare environment, they're afraid of immunizations, those situations, we can consult our child life specialist. Depending on what other resources available, you can also consult social work or a behavioral health provider, such as the Healthy Minds, Healthy Kids program some of our primary care offices have, or a psychologist. For those really severe cases, sedation may be necessary, so a sedation consult would be appropriate. And as you mentioned, we are so lucky to have all these resources at CHOP, but everyone has access to the Pathway, which is online. So tell us about where we can find that. Yeah, so you can find the Pathway on CHOP's website, www.chop.edu backslash pathways, and filter for primary care. Or you can go into any search engine and Google CHOP Clinical Pathway Challenging Behaviors. And then for those at CHOP in EPIC, Clinical Pathways can be found under the Links tab. 
Great. So many ways to find it. And it's so nice that this is available to everyone because, as we mentioned, this is such an important topic. We could talk about this all day, but I want you to tell me what one takeaway message you think is the most important for pediatricians to walk away from this podcast remembering. That's tough because there's probably more than one, but I would say that we've all had patients with challenging behaviors, and we know those visits can be time-consuming and unsuccessful. So the pathway and the resources available in the pathway are there to help with planning. And I think planning is the key component. It's everybody's responsibility. It's a team effort. And although it will require more time on the front end, it should ultimately save time during the visit. And in the end, visits will be more successful and the patient, family, and the staff will be safe. Great. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the three of you talking to us today and for your work on this pathway. As we mentioned, it's so important for patients and for everyone's safety. And we are really lucky that you are thinking about this for everybody and sharing it with us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 